so then we will go ahead and get on with our next speaker, Gina Fragioni. Fragioni, sorry. Um, she is a Northwest native. She grew up in the Seattle area and attended Oregon Health Sciences University, where she received her master's degree in physician assistant studies. Gina has been practicing clinical dermatology for 10 years, and she lives in Bellevue, Washington with her husband and two children. So let's introduce and welcome Gina Fragioni. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm pleased to be here and talk with you guys this morning about contracts. Um, I must disclose to you that I am a member of the Speakers Bureau for these companies, Allergan, Galderma, Intendus, Medicis, and Onset. They have no financial interest in my discussion with you guys today. Um, so first, I'm a physician assistant. I'm not an attorney. This is not meant to replace a personal consultation with your own local legal counsel. Um, it's meant to be informative and to get you thinking so that you act, ask the appropriate questions to potential employers. Um, but it's not meant to take the place of discussing uh, these matters with your own attorney. So, few warnings here. Um, this may be boring for some or all of you. Hopefully it's not boring for any of you, but uh, contracts can be a little dry at times, but I think hopefully all of you will take home something that will be beneficial to you either now or at some point in the future. Um, it might be repetitive, but again, I'm just trying to drive some points home that maybe some of you aren't familiar with, and uh, I think repetition is a good way to become familiar with those aspects. So hopefully all of you will learn something that you didn't know before you listened to this talk, or at the very least, it will get you thinking about questions uh, that you can ask in the future. So our objectives today are for you guys to understand the basic anatomy of a contract. How many of you have a written contract for your current position? Good. How many of you have read through it in its entirety and prior to signing it? Okay, a few less than raise their hands that had contracts. So, um, you know, hopefully you guys can learn some facts that will make you more knowledgeable about things and in a better position to negotiate a beneficial situation for both you and your employer. Um, and also ask the right questions. So my advice to you before you maybe even seek out a position in dermatology would be to, you know, learn a little bit about contracts and also maybe some uh, specifics about the local area where you will be practicing, maybe network with some other physician assistants, practicing dermatology in your local area. Um, most of us probably didn't go to business school and are maybe not that business savvy, um, you know, and surprisingly, probably many of the physicians you might be working for did not go to business school either and may not be that financially savvy. So. Uh, it's important for you to do some research before you sit down with an employer. So getting into a contract, th most of these things will be outlined to some extent in most contracts. The order could be independent of who wrote the contract or um, they could be as specific as you want them to be. So typically a contract will start out with your job title and this could be as simple as physician assistant and that's all it might say. 
Um, there might be some specifics as to how many days a week, how many hours per week. It could even get more specific with hours per day. You will see patients from 8 a.m. till noon. You will have a break from 12 to 1, and then commence seeing patients again from 1 to 5. It's also important to differentiate between patient contact hours. So these would be hours that when you're seeing patients, you're essentially generating revenue for your employer versus administrative hours where you'll be doing charting, calling patients back, things that may not directly be bringing revenue into your practice. So part-time versus full-time. Um, this can get sticky sometimes because even though one might work five days a week, that may not be considered full-time by your employer depending on the hours per day that you work. So I think this is a really important definition to hammer out in the contract um, to define the full-time versus part-time and what exactly that means. Also, uh, you know, working in healthcare, you would assume that your own personal health insurance might be a covered benefit for you. Not always. It's important to find out how many hours per week do you need to work or what percentage of time based on a 40-hour work week do you need to uh, be working in your clinic to be eligible for health insurance. Um, and then also along with that, are you eligible immediately to be on the company's health care uh, insurance or is there a waiting period? Another thing where there could be um, a waiting period or some questions about eligibility would be a retirement plan. A 401k is probably the most typical type of uh, retirement plan. If you work for a hospital or a nonprofit, it could possibly call, be called a 403b. They're very similar. Um, they're basically just large-scale retirement uh, plans that employers can provide for their employees. So the term of the contract, when you sit down and sign this contract, does it commence the day it's signed? Does it commence uh, the first day that you're scheduled to see patients? And this is another thing I can't stress enough. I would highly recommend that this contract be in place and be signed prior to your first day of clinic. Don't you know, expect to sit down at lunchtime and you know, peruse through a sometimes 10-page contract and you know, think you're going to sign it and be on with your day and finish up with your afternoon full of patients. Uh, also with contracts, some might specifically say or have a date that it's good for one year from the day that it's signed. Um, some don't say anything. There could be some wording to the effect that the contract is uh, enforceable or in place until one or both parties mutually agree uh, to dissolve the contract agreement. So again, uh, earlier I mentioned the title. Here's, there's typically a duty section. So again, it could be as simple as provide services as a physician assistant. In a lot of cases, uh, your employer's attorney will be writing this contract, and they may not be familiar with uh, what types of duties you might have. I think it's important here to outline if you have any sort of uh, management responsibility, if you'll be managing staff at all, that you have that outlined in there. Um, if you don't want to do that, make sure that it's not in there. Uh, and then uh, it could be detailed that you will see you know, X number of patients per day. 
you will do specific types of procedures, you know, whether it's Mohs closures, cosmetic laser treatments, fillers, Botox. Um, you know, it can be really as, as brief or as detailed as you would like it to be. Um, and also another thing to, um, important to get in there is if you are going to be on call, how often that is. Um, you know, sometimes employers will do the bait and switch, you know, mention there's some call involved and then, you know, you find out it's 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So just important to get maybe some guidelines as to what the expectation will be. So this might seem obvious, but um, your working facilities. I think all of us expect to walk in and have a desk provided with a computer, a phone, um, you know, and that these things would be provided by the employer. Um, the reason I mention this is that, you know, this is a real world example of, I have heard of physician assistants actually getting a, a monthly charge for the use of the phone and the computer on their desk. So it seems like a silly question to ask, but uh, might be worth asking if it's someone you're not familiar with or perhaps if they haven't had other physicians or physician assistants uh, work for them. Another thing you might want to just ask about is if you will be taking a lot of call, will they provide a cell phone? Some um, you know, large practices will have an on-call cell phone that's kind of switched between providers when they take call. You might even inquire about an allowance if you do take call often that you know, they could offset the cost of your own personal cell phone. So I think this one's really important, um, staffing. Will you have appropriate medical assistance available to you? I think sometimes uh, employers and business owners can be a little short-sighted when it comes to this. Um, I think the old adage, it takes money to make money, is very important here. If you don't have enough staff to help you work efficiently, you can't maximize the amount of profit that you're bringing into your practice. So I hear this quite often that you know, people first starting out, their employer maybe doesn't want to provide a medical assistant to them at all. Uh, and I think that's very short-sighted because it really puts a damper on how efficient you can be in your clinical practice. So if you have one medical assistant and say they make $15 an hour, but if you were to bring on a second medical assistant at $15 an hour, that could effectively increase your production by say $200 an hour. And by production, I mean you know revenue that you bring into the practice. So if you hire a medical assistant for eight hours a day at $15 an hour, that medical assistant or that additional medical assistant might cost your practice $120 a day. But if it allows you to bring in an additional $200 of revenue per hour, the difference there is $1,500 a day. So. You know, I think that's a good real-world example to bring up to an employer if you do feel like more staff would help you run your clinic more efficiently. Um, the other thing with your own personal medical assistant, will you be involved in the hiring and firing? Do you have a say in who this person is? Is there someone at the practice that's been there for a while that you'll just be inheriting as your assistant? Uh, but I think it's important to be able to have a say in who you'll be working with directly every day. Um, receptionists. In my opinion, this is the most difficult position to fill in a clinic. It's a very hard job. These people take 
the brunt of you know, disgruntled patients calling in or coming into the office. Oftentimes other people that work in the back office maybe are not so uh, friendly or kind to your receptionist. So I think this is someone that it's very important in your clinic that your receptionist be able to describe to patients calling in or patients walking in what your role in the clinic is. These people need to understand what a dermatology physician assistant or nurse practitioner can bring to the table. They need to be a huge promoter for you. Um, also, you know, is your front office appropriately staffed? Are patients calling in and waiting 10 minutes to, on the phone to make an appointment? Are they waiting 10 minutes in line to check in? You know, we've had instances in my own clinic where I work, we have a late patient policy. We're fairly flexible on it, but the rule is if someone is more than 15 minutes late for their appointment, we will decide if we're going to see them or not. We usually always see them, but we do have that policy in writing. You know, if your patient got there five minutes late, but they waited in line 10 minutes to check in, that's really not fair to your patient. Um, so I think it's important to, um, you know, spend some time in a clinic before you decide to uh, seek employment there and just kind of get a feel for how the office works and how educated and well-trained that these staff members are. So compensation, um, we'll talk more in detail about this later, but I just wanted to give a brief overview. Um, you know, I'll kind of go over three formulas here, and this varies dramatically between the type of practice you're in, the geographical area you're in, and your level of experience. So nothing in this discussion today is meant to be, you know, specific advice. Uh, please don't take it as, you know, a concrete uh, thing that everybody should be getting or that that's the offer that you should request from your employer. So compensation can be done by the percent of collections and this means the percent, a percent of money that you generate for your practice will be paid to you in your paycheck. So typically it's done by the percent of the monies collected, not by the percent of the money billed. Um, you can also have a salary, you know, per year that's then paid per month, and that's just a flat number that's divided, you know, by 12 and paid to you each month, or kind of a combination of both where you do get a base salary or a guaranteed amount of income with then uh, an additional bonus that's typically based on the revenue, a percentage of revenue that you bring into your practice. So the payment of this compensation, uh, again, get this in writing. Is it going to be a monthly payroll? Will it be bi-monthly? Now, I put bi-monthly on here and then I Googled bi-monthly. And bi-monthly actually means twice a month, but it also means every other month. So again, just with the wording and things like this, spell it out. It doesn't have to sound fancy. You know, it could simply say, employee will be paid every two weeks, Make it specific, though. Um, with bonus payments, if you are in a situation where part of your compensation does involve a payment of a bonus, it's important to know, is that bonus something that's paid monthly? Will it be paid quarterly? Or it could even be paid annually. Um, I think this is another thing that's highly over-promised and often under-delivered uh, by employers. So it's very important, and I cannot stress enough, please get this in writing. 
uh, the specifics of how often this bonus will be paid and what the structure of the bonus will be. So I've talked a lot about production and revenue, and this, this term for this is typically called accounts receivable. And accounts receivable are the monies owed to your practice on your behalf from money that you've generated for billings that you have, you have done and sent out to insurance companies. Those pending payments are called accounts receivable. How many of you are privy to what your accounts receivable or what your monthly income generation to your practice is? I think this, I mean, I can't, again, express to you enough. You need to be able to see these numbers. Um, some offices, you know, their billing might be disorganized and they may tell you they can't sort it out. This is also something, it's tedious, but, you know, you could by hand uh, kind of keep track of all the codes you bill and what your um, charges for your office, what they charge for those codes you know, just to kind of get an idea if they're not giving you those numbers. Uh, I think that that is information that all of you should be able to get from an employer. It should be readily available and fairly easy to prepare. So who owns these accounts receivable? And this question comes up usually only if someone leaves a position. So don't assume that if you terminate a position or you leave a job that you will continue to draw you know, a percentage or a paycheck or a portion of these accounts receivable, unless it is in writing. It needs to be specific uh, for how long will you draw a percentage and if you will continue to draw a percentage or any monies from the accounts receivable at all. Vacation. Um, paid vacation is usually outlined in positions that have a salary only or perhaps a base salary sort of compensation package. And it's usually outlined as number of weeks of either paid time off, which in effect they expect you to use for possibly your CME hours, sick time, and vacation. So generous packages could be upwards of four to five weeks. Newer grads or people with less experience might expect two to three weeks. But there can be a huge range on paid vacation time. Now, if you're on a different uh, compensation plan where perhaps you're paid no salary, you just derive a percentage of what you bill for the practice, it won't be paid vacation because if you're not there, you're not generating income. And it could simply be outlined as employee must work a minimum of you know, 48 weeks per year or maybe out of the office on six weeks per year unpaid. So again, these are usually guidelines, but I think it's important to have in there, especially if you're someone that does like to travel a lot or take time off. You need to know, you know what the expectation of how many weeks per year you should be expected to be in the office. Um, also, usually with larger employment groups, hospitals, or large multi-specialty practices, they might have a very specific protocol for requesting time off. Um, you know, the larger organizations get and the more bureaucracy that goes into them, it could be a fairly lengthy process to request time off. It might have to be done in writing and you might need to do it many days or months in advance. So that's another thing, again, that should be outlined uh, in your contract or somewhere have that in writing, what the expectation would be. 
Uh, talked earlier about medical insurance. You know, would you, as an employee versus full-time or part-time, be eligible for your employer's uh, medical insurance plan? And this is health insurance for you personally, not malpractice insurance. Um, when will you be eligible? Is it the day you start? Will you have to wait 90 days? Uh, and then how many hours a week uh, or what percentage of full-time will you need to work uh, to be eligible for this health insurance plan? And that could be dictated by your employer's agreement with their coverage provider, whether it's you know Regents, Primera, whoever it might be. Um, and then also, sometimes large hospital groups or larger employers might even cover the premium for your family. So again, an added bonus, but something to look into. Um, and do they offer COBRA? Um, you know, you may not ever need to take advantage of it, but it's just something good to know. Some small offices or small employers may not be able to offer their employees COBRA, um, which is health insurance that you would still continue to get through your employer uh, after your employment term ends, but you would be uh, financially responsible for that yourself. So retirement plans, again, um, these are typically uh, things that are offered to employees in you know, smaller to medium-sized practice groups. Uh, they usually you are not eligible right when you start. And an important thing to take note of here is, for example, if you were to start in January 10th of 2010 and you would be eligible one, after, one year after your uh, start date, you would then be eligible to enroll in your 401k plan January 9th of 2011. Some plans have very strict regulations as to when employees can enter the plan. And it might be that you have to enroll by December 31st. So in a sense, you could have missed that, that window and you may have to wait an additional year to join uh, your employer's retirement plan. Other questions to ask, does your employer provide a match? And this is money that your employer would put into your retirement plan on your behalf. Um, it's typically a percentage match, 3%, 5%. Um, and then also, is this match subject to vesting? And we'll go over vesting in a little bit, but it's an important term to know if you're not already familiar with it. Profit sharing. This is another, uh, it could be a very large part of your compensation package. And I think it's important to look at this as an entire package, not just your salary or your paycheck alone. All these things are included in your, in your package, in your benefits package. So profit sharing is a way that employers can take a percentage of the previous year's profits and they will disperse them to employees uh, in various amounts. And this is very employer specific. There's usually something in writing that's handed out annually to the employees as to what the breakdown for that specific year may be. Um, important to ask if your employer offers this benefit, um, are you eligible for it, and what is the outline of the plan. Um, profit sharing and, like we talked about earlier, the employer match to your 401k, um, those are typically subject to vesting. And vesting is a timeline over which the employee, or you, will own a percentage, a portion, or all of the monies put into your 401k by your employer on your behalf. And this is used as an incentive to maintain employment. So they don't typically hand it over to you all at one time. You don't own it all after, say, the first year or six months of working at the clinic. 
Um, and both the employer match and, and the uh, profit sharing are usually subject to these vesting schedules. So here's an example. Over five years, say the employee is 20% invested per year. So after five years of service, you would essentially be 100% vested, which means at that point, you would then own all the money put into your 401k on your behalf by your employer. And this could be done any number of ways. It's very specific to each employer group, uh, and it could be different even for different classes of employees. So, you know, another scenario, the employee could be completely vested after just two years of service. And sometimes there's vesting schedules where you're essentially never completely vested. It's always kind of, you know, holding it, uh, you know, the carrot, so to speak, to get you to maintain your employment there. So is your employer going to pay your credentialing, your licensing, and your professional dues? Um, these things are not huge expenses. Again, when you add up the cost of what these might be, you know, a state medical license, depending on the state, is probably a few hundred dollars every two years. Uh, your national certification, again, it's not something you'll take frequently, but will this be covered by your employer? I think it's probably several hundred dollars to take this exam. DEA certification, uh, I know mine was recently, it was $500 for three years. So, uh, you know, it can be a fairly big chunk of money, but um, it's typically not something that's paid out frequently. And then ACLS, uh, this might only be required in a practice where you're doing a lot of surgeries or uh, procedures that require any sort of sedation. So it may not be applicable to those of you just doing, say, general dermatology where you're not uh, sedating people. Professional memberships, you know, memberships to the SDPA, the AAPA, your state association. Will your employer give you a certain dollar amount to cover these memberships? Will they cover one or two memberships? Um, maybe they'll cover whatever memberships you want. Um, again, just things to ask. CME. Um, most people, I would say, are probably given some sort of annual allowance um, of both time and money to spend on continuing medical education. Important to know, if you do get a, a lump sum of money, is that available to you, you know, January 1st of the year and you can use it all for a conference in January? Or are you only given, you know, one-twelfth of that amount each month? Uh, if you use it early in the in the year, can you you know essentially use it, and then your employer will just know that you're uh, good for it uh, the rest of the year. If you don't use it all in a year, say you don't do any traveling or attend expensive conferences, can you roll that money over? Um, and if not, can you use it for other things, perhaps equipment, uh, books? Uh, just important to ask. And then time off, probably more important to know. Uh, this if you're in a salary or perhaps a salary plus bonus situation, uh, will that be paid time off and how much time is allowed? Is it part of your vacation or do you get a separate allowance for that? So the FMLA guidelines, the, this is a federal law, the Family Medical Leave Act, that allows employees to be uh, take 12 weeks of unpaid leave for a medical reason. And this could be a reason, uh, your own personal medical situation, a child, a spouse, a family member you need to take care of. 
And I think this comes up a lot, I get asked a lot about um, maternity leave. And that would, if your employer uh, has more than 50 employees within a 100 mile radius, then your employer is a large enough employer that they must uh, follow the FMLA guidelines. So this means that you're able to take these 12 weeks of unpaid leave and that they must guarantee not the same position, but a position of same or equivalent pay, benefits, and job status. So uh, it may not be your exact job, but it should be equivalent. So maternity leave. Um, you know, when I look around the room, I think there's probably maybe many of you who have taken advantage or may at some point take advantage of maternity or paternity uh, leave, depending on your employer. Uh, something to ask if that is in your future or you think it might come up during your course of employment. Uh, will this be paid? Will this be unpaid? And how many weeks are they going to allow you uh, to be off from work? So if your employer does not fall under the FMLA guidelines, meaning they have less than 50 employees, in Washington State, if your employer has 12 or more employees, they must abide by these uh, disability regulations. And pregnancy is considered a disability here in Washington State. So uh, employers must allow uh, a female to take six weeks off after an uncomplicated delivery, eight weeks off after a C-section delivery, and also allow for time off for any other pregnancy-related condition limited number of hours that you can be on your feet, if you're required to be at home or in the hospital on bed rest. Again, they must hold a position for you that has equal benefits, pay, and job status. And this does actually apply to other disabilities, illnesses, um, things of that nature, but I think pregnancy is the one that I get asked about the most. So now we'll be talking about professional liability insurance or your medical malpractice insurance. Um, will your employer provide medical malpractice insurance? And I think most of them probably will, unless you're working as an independent contractor and carry your own medical and uh, malpractice insurance. Uh, usually I believe it's probably done as a writer on your employer's policy. And this means your employer has their own malpractice insurance and they simply pay typically a much lower fee to have you as a writer. It's an additional uh, employee or provider in their office that's able to kind of coattail or practice on their, the employer's malpractice policy. Perhaps an employer might give you an allowance uh, each month or each year for you to purchase your own malpractice insurance. Um, can I just get a show of hands? Are, is there anyone in this room that has their own personal malpractice insurance? I think that's something um, that's important to look into. I think if you, you know, read the fine print, I think it would probably be in your benefit, but it might be cost prohibitive for many of you to purchase your own individual, individual malpractice policy. Um, and then lastly, will this policy, is it occurrence or claims made? Um, and you know, to be honest, when I first graduated and got a job, I was just so happy to have a job, I didn't think to even ask this question. Um, so occurrence malpractice. So this type of malpractice insurance is more expensive, and I would gather it's probably less common because of that. 
But this type of malpractice insurance is typically considered better in that this type of insurance will cover you for any uh, malpractice claim that's brought against you while the policy was in effect, regardless of when that claim is made. So if your policy was in effect from January 1st of 2011 through December 31st of 2011, any claim made after December 31st of 2011 would be covered. Um, so the important thing here is that you would not have the need for tail coverage, which we'll go over briefly a little bit later. Um, and tail coverage can be expensive. So claims made is probably the more common type of malpractice insurance that your employer may offer. And this is a policy that you're, you are covered for alleged acts of malpractice that occur during the course of the time this policy is in effect and that are reported during the time this policy is in effect. So if you've been at a job many years, this is probably, you know, maybe a malpractice claim is brought against you for something that occurred your first year uh, on the job, it's now five years later. If you still have that same policy, that would be covered. But if you leave that job and go to a different employer with, say, a different company, that claim would not be covered. So in order to protect yourself about from future claims, uh, it's important that you uh, provide yourself or purchase or get some tail coverage insurance. And I refer to tail coverage as my $4,934 lesson. So I hope that all of you will take home that this is a costly policy, but it's, it's mandatory. I mean, you must have this if you have had um, claims made malpractice insurance at your employer and you leave that employer to be covered for any act that could be brought against you in the future for something that occurred while that policy was in effect, you need to have a tail coverage policy to provide coverage for that. And it's a one-time policy you purchase and it will cover all uh, malpractice claims that may be brought against you during a period of employment uh, for which you no longer have uh, coverage. So who pays for this policy? Well, unfortunately, in my case, I paid for it. Um, I hope that you know some of you or all of you might think to ask in an employment situation, you know, when you're sitting down with a new potential employer, this is definitely something you could put on the table as if you are to leave this position, perhaps it could be in your contract that your employer will pay for that when you leave. And please get that in writing in your contract. Um, you might be able to, if you're discussing with a new or potential employer, they may offer or you could ask if they would pay for your tail coverage uh, to cover you at your, from your previous uh, position. So you could use it as a bargaining tool, but it's important to know that these things can be expensive and they tend to be more costly the longer you've been in practice. So, Termination, there's always this uh, section in a contract as to what uh, acts or when the, terminate, the, the agreement is terminated. Um, and I actually read my contract and specifically in there is the death of the employee, which um, you know, seems kind of morbid but obvious, uh, but it is in there. So. Um, it could be mutual agreement of both parties. There could also be something in there about either party in putting in writing um, a notice of termination. And usually there is uh, a period of time, 30, 60, or 90 days, that that uh, 
notice of termination or ending of the contract must be given to your employer. Um, and then obviously in the event of negligence, violation of professional conduct code, uh, or cause, which simply means you did something wrong and you get fired. So most states, including Washington, are what are called at-will states. And this means your employer can terminate your employment for any reason, unless it's uh, in accordance with anti-discrimination laws. You know, they can't fire you because you are pregnant or because you are disabled, if you are able to still do your job functions. Um, it could be as simple as, hey, their niece just graduated from PA school and she needs a job, so you're out. Um, but it's important to know that, like I said, most states are at will, but not all of them. So a non-compete clause. Um, I think employers really like providers to sign these, uh, and I get asked a lot, are these enforceable? Uh, the answer is yes, they are enforceable or they wouldn't be in contracts. People spend a lot of time and money getting lawyers to write these detailed non-compete clauses. Uh, and they're usually based on uh, a limitation uh, in the vicinity that you might be able to practice or even the type of practice that you might be able to uh, move on to if you leave your current employer. So the radius is, you know, basically the question is, what is a reasonable amount of distance for a patient to travel? Will a patient travel five miles down the road to see you? Will a patient travel 30 miles? Perhaps. Um, but the larger the radius and the more limiting uh, that radius is, is it a city limit? Is it a county limit? Um, keep in mind, the broader these non-compete clauses get, the more difficult they, they become to enforce. So when I consulted an employment attorney to get this information for this talk here, she told me she specializes in medical uh, employment law, and she said 12 to 18 months is probably the most typical length of time that a non-compete clause would be in effect. Um, she's seen them as short as six months and as long as three years. So they'll also usually have some wording that they forbid the solicitation of patients and or employees from the practice, and also the use of confidential business information, whether it be specific cosmetic procedures or protocols that they've come up with, but um, that can also be included in your non-compete clause. And it could also limit the scope of services that you would be able to offer at a new job. Um, you know, would it limit uh, all cosmetic procedures? Would it limit the practice of dermatology in general, or even the practice of medicine? So keeping in mind, the more limited they are, if you sign a non-compete clause that says you cannot practice in, you know, three local counties any type of medicine for three years, that really limits your uh, ability to seek employment in the future. So typically, the more broad they are, uh, the more difficult they are to enforce, but not impossible. So they're enforceable if they meet guidelines, and that guideline is, is it reasonably necessary to protect the employer's business interest that you essentially not take on this new employment? So something to consider instead of a non-compete clause might be a non-solicitation clause, which, you know, this compromise might make your employer happy that basically you're signing an agreement that says you agree not to take patients, 
you won't actively seek out these patients and try to get them to come to your new practice, nor will you solicit employees. So this may be something that appeals to your employer, but it won't li limit your future employment. So if an employer has shown in court that it was reasonably necessary to protect their business for you to not work at this new job, they may be able to seek something called injunctive relief. The reason I bring up these terms is they might be in a contract that's presented to you. So just so you have some basic knowledge as to what these things might mean, um, so you can take them in context. Uh, and the injunctive relief is essentially a court order to quit your job. More likely, there'll be something in a contract uh, with the term liquidated damages. And this is very specific and very enforceable. Um, it's a wording in a contract that basically states, if the physician assistant is in violation of the non-compete agreement, you will pay for all court and mediation costs, and there's no limit on that. It can get very expensive. I would gather it would be in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to try to um, argue or go to court over one of these scenarios. Um, there's also typically wording in there about a specific dollar amount or a percentage. So for example, uh, the employee agrees to pay on demand to the corporation or the previous employer liquidated damages or cash in the amount of 40% of the gross fees charged or that are chargeable for services provided in violation of this section. So this means you violate your non-compete. You go work for a practice across the street. You've been there for three months and you've generated $100,000 in revenue or you have billed $100,000 uh, to this new practice. Your previous employer could be uh, able to collect uh, $40,000 plus court costs. So um, the more specific uh, these are, uh, the easier they are to enforce when it comes to the liquidated damages clause. So keep in mind, all things are negotiable, and I think it's really important as an employee to sit down and think about what things are the most important to you. Put them in order of importance. Perhaps your compensation is the number one thing. You want to make a certain amount or that is more important to you than any of these other benefits. And I call them benefits, because when you're looking at how you're reimbursed, you need to consider it as a benefits package. All these things go into you know, a number or a percentage, perhaps, of what you bring into the practice, and all these things go into that. What's your desired work schedule? Maybe you want to work two days a week, and you really don't care how much money you make, so you know, put your desired work schedule number one. Maybe you want to work around the corner. You don't want more than a 10-minute commute, so that could be high up on your list. Um, do you want to take a lot of time off? Do you want six to eight weeks off a year? We'll put that up at the top of your list. Um, do you need or do you want a retirement plan? This can be a very high dollar value to your benefit package if your employer is giving you both profit sharing and matching in your 401k. Health insurance. Uh, when you add it up, it might be about $5,000 a year, which you know, is a pretty big chunk of money, um, and maybe you're able to pay for it yourself, but you might need to just be able to participate in the employer's plan, whether they 
uh, pay for it or not. You just need the eligibility to uh, obtain your medical insurance through your employer. Malpractice insurance, tough to put a number on depending on you know, what type of uh, uh, malpractice insurance your employer offers. And then professional fees. I mean, these are not huge amounts of money when we look at these in order. $500 a year, possibly. CME might only equal you know, one to $2,000 on the generous end of things uh, if you look at it as an annual value to your benefits package. So these are just examples of possible scenarios when it comes to compensation. Uh, it might be different based on your geographic area. Um, are we running out of time? Okay, I do wanna leave some time for questions at the end, um, but I think this is the one that most people have questions about. Keep in mind, this varies greatly depending on what type of practice you're in, are you full-time or part-time, how much experience you have, and where in the country you practice. Uh, it's gonna be different here in Seattle than it would be in Des Moines, Iowa, or you know, uh, Texas. So um, again, just kind of outlining the formulas here. Salary only, you're paid a certain dollar amount each year to do your job. Uh, a base salary, so you're guaranteed a specific amount of money per month with possibly a bonus structure. And then production only, where you're, you're being paid a percentage of the collections that you bring into your practice. So salary, this is important for people that require a steady stream of income. Are you a planner? Do you need the same amount of money coming into your checking account every single month? Do you need to be paid if you take time off so it's very consistent? This is typically lower for uh, a training period, the less experience you have, uh, and they can convert to uh, a percentage formula at, at some point. Um, again, that's very specific, and I would recommend you discuss that with both an employer and an attorney. Um, so a base salary plus a bonus. Uh, Typically these positions, the base salary might be lower than a salary in a salary only position, um, but it's a predictable stream of income that's paid monthly or bi-weekly, again, bi-weekly can mean uh, twice a week or every other week, so be specific. Uh, you might say every two weeks. Um, and the bonus structure Again, a huge amount of variance on this, but just for kind of ease of demonstrating how these plans might work, I did put some examples in here. So you might be offered a base salary of a certain amount, and then your bonus structure could be a percentage of the collections that you bring into your practice. Keep in mind with these scenarios, the higher your base salary, your bonus could be limited or a smaller percentage. The lower your base salary, the more generous the bonus might be. So in this scenario, and again, these are completely random numbers. I would not expect everyone in this room to uh, be making this much money. Perhaps you know they collect far more than this or far less. There is a huge range. So if you were offered a $100,000 base salary to work full time at a clinic, and you are eligible for your bonus after you generate $300,000 for your employer or three times your annual salary, and you generate $700,000 of collections annually, your bonus could be 15% of the difference between $700,000, the total money you have uh, collected, minus the three times your base salary. So 
15% of $400,000 is $60,000. So with this scenario, your annual compensation, just your paycheck, not including your benefits package, malpractice insurance, health insurance, 401k, would be $160,000. Now if you're on a straight percentage, these can be very straightforward. You get a percent of what you bring into the practice. It can be simple, it can just be one flat percentage. I've seen tiered percentages where you get you know, a lower percentage on the lower dollars that you collect and as you collect more money for the practice, you get a higher portion of that. This is typically paid monthly, could be paid quarterly or even every other week, but it, I find that it's desirable to employers because there's little risk involved. They are only, uh, you know, you only make money if they make money. So they're not paying you money if you're sitting there not generating income for them. But it can be unpredictable. If you take a lot of time off, if, you know, like in Seattle, if there's, you know, a half an inch of snow, all your patients will cancel for the day before and the day after in case it's icy. So um, be prepared for that. We had a very slow January this year. Uh, so in this scenario, the employee generates the same amount of income for their practice, $700,000, and this employee is paid 30%. Again, there is a huge range on this. It could be as low as 25% or as high as 45%, but you need to take into account the value of the other benefits that your employer is providing for you. So if this employee collects 30% of $700,000, they will earn $210,000 annually. So, you know, I think oftentimes people are fearful to go uh, to plans like this, but do see it can work out to your benefit. Um, and then just some other, this is kind of a random scenario and may not apply to any of you, but if you start out on a salaried position, say months one through six, and then you convert to a compensation uh, based on a percentage of what you bring into the, the uh, uh, company, you could switch to your compensation on month seven, and I would really highly recommend that you have uh, your own employment attorney review any sort of uh, plan that involves a change of the type of compensation. So billing practices. It's really important to know what kind of insurance your practice sees. Will you be seeing Medicare and Medicaid all day, in which case you can expect your collections to be fairly on, on the low end. Um, if you're seeing all you know, private pay insurance, it could be upwards of you know, 65, 85% of what you might collect of your total billings. Um, cosmetics. How will that revenue be calculated? Typically, there's high overhead in a cosmetic practice. There's product that needs to be, you know, usually that cost is taken out before your percentage or your compensation uh, would be calculated. And is there a laser surcharge? This holds true for practices that buy, you know, the best and brightest brand new lasers. These things are expensive, and how uh, do clinics pay for them? They'll usually take a larger chunk of your uh, laser charge to get that laser paid off. So scheduling, um, again, this goes back to your receptionist, the people answering the phone, they need to know what a physician assistant can do and what role you bring to the practice. Are they educated in your level of education? Uh, they're not calling you a medical assistant, they're calling you a physician assistant and making a differentiation there. Um, there's also brochures available from the SDPA uh, to help you know, patients or even staff members understand what your role in your practice can be. So, in conclusion, again, 
I feel like a broken record here, but please seek legal counsel to discuss your own personal contract. In many cases, this contract is probably worth over $100,000 with all your benefits, um, and simple legal review by an employment attorney could cost less than $1,000. Uh, and in my opinion, it would be money very well spent to have a professional uh, review it uh, before you sign it. So again, local networking, please talk with other PAs in your area that might have more experience than you and maybe get an idea for the local hiring climate, what you might expect as far as compensation. Questions? No questions. Oh, question. Talking about the eligibility of bonus, how did you, I mean, do you know the average of um, the salary? Is it three times, two and a half times, or does it vary by it, state? It really varies by state and geographic reason, uh, region. Um, is Casey D'Amato in here? Ah, Casey. So Casey owns a consulting company and probably can speak better to um, specific questions like this. I don't know if you want to address this here in the... So some of you may know me, I'm Casey Drapo D'Amato, and I um, founded a consulting business for physicians and PAs alike. Um, we're a national-based company, and we help with PA contracts, um, mediation, any kind of conflict resolution within your practice, um, anything like that. We can formulate a contract from scratch. We work with all specialties. Um, I happen to be a dermatology PA myself, but and all of our, our consultants are working PAs who have business backgrounds, either our PA owners of their practice, managers, and have all sorts of other um, business experiences, um, MBAs, such and such. So to speak to that, there is not an exact formula uh, for a base salary um, in any specialty, dermatology or anything else. It is not, there is not an exact formula that you should have a base salary of 100,000 or that you should get a bonus after double or triple your salary. Every situation is really unique. Um, in some cases, a lot of PAs are paid just on percentage of collections alone. Uh, other people do prefer to have a base salary. Like Gina was saying, they like that comfort and that's appropriate as well. So, um, you know, what we look at is when we're talking to, to a PA who has a question is we look at what they generate for the practice, their total benefit package, um, not only their collections to their practice, but what other things are they bringing in to benefit and grow their practice because there's a dollar value to that. And then we sit down and we can mediate between the PA or in the physician and figure out what's appropriate for that exact practice. So I wish I had an easy answer that it, that it should be double your base salary, but it just isn't that way. Um, you know, I think in dermatology, kind of your general figures for an experienced dermatology PA, if you look at the, your total collections and then you look at your salary and you put a dollar value in all your benefits, add your salary to, to the dollar value of all your benefits and look at your total compensation benefit package as a whole, everything included, you should be under 50%. So your salary could be anywhere from 30, 40, 45 percent. Um, you know, PAs salaries anywhere from 60,000 to our highest paid client is uh, getting paid 400,000 uh, as a PA in Texas. So um, it, it is not necessarily is geographically does vary, but to tell you the truth, on dermatology PA salaries are pretty uniform throughout the country, ex with the exception of Florida, slightly lower. Um, but otherwise pretty uniform, um, but just varies practice to, by practice depending on general dermatology, Mohs, cosmetics, academic settings, full-time, part-time, um, all the benefits that are included, and it just, that's just going to vary greatly by each practice. 
Um, so I wish I had more specifics to share, um, but there's just a big, big range. We see collections of PAs anywhere from two or 300,000 a year, and probably the highest collections we've seen for a PA is about 1.4 million. So move to Texas, not Florida. <laughs> oh, the company is um, Certified PA Consulting. Uh, we charge anywhere by the hour or, you know, we, we offer a full written report, a breakdown analysis of your particular situation with three strategic recommendations for that situation. Um, it could be anywhere. Our hourly rate is about 200 an hour. Um, we are offering discounts to SDPA. We just had a meeting with the board members this morning. We're going to be offering 10% discount for SDPA members. Um, to do a full written report is roughly in the $500 range. And if we're mediating with a physician or office manager and kind of ongoing, um, then it's usually between 500 and 750. Yeah. Thank you, Casey. Yeah. So I put my email address up here, and I didn't mean to put it in yellow. I, I did want you to be able to see it. It's uh, Gina Fragioni at hotmail.com. Please feel free to email me if you think of questions later. Thank right. you. Thank you. Yeah.